Welcome to Things That Will Help with Buffy Barfoot. This podcast explores what it's like to be human and how to find tools to feel clear, grounded, and happier. The weekly theme will be simple as well as rich and something you can apply to your real life. The human stories ahead do not negate the hard or the dark, but rather point to the lighthouses along the way. This is Buffy. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome you to this special episode. And I'm going to add a trigger warning. I will be at different points talking about addiction, suicide, trauma, abuse, and similar things like that. I dedicate this episode to anyone who loves or has loved an addict, and in particular, those who have lost people to addiction. I also want to preface these stories by reminding you um, that I am not a psychologist and I am not a mental health professional. And I am coming to you from a very personal place, um, a place where I have experienced deep sorrow, contemplation, and, um, and personal experience with this. But whatever I have to say in this episode, in all the episodes of Things That Will Help podcast, is simply my take on it thus far in my journey. If you are dealing with addiction or if you are in a relationship of any kind with someone who is, um, seek help and support from qualified professionals. This episode was super difficult for me to decide to do, but it is important. Addiction, suicide, self-harm, alcohol and drug abuse, domestic abuse, violence, and mental illness of all kinds. These things are at all-time highs right now. We have access to more wellness techniques, more information about addiction and mental illness, and, and more available supposed antidotes than ever before. And yet, these problems are at an all-time high. There are not only more addicts in deeper trouble, but there are also more people who love them, feel responsible for them, and feel helpless to help than ever before. If you have been listening all along to Things That Will Help podcast, you know that my brother Benjamin died of a drug overdose when I was 27 and he was 29. And it left me gutted from the loss and, and, and really terribly frightened for my own future. It was like grief and technicolor, and I have certainly never been the same. And I talk about the grief a lot, and I have told stories about him in this podcast and sorted through some of the piercing sadness and devastation that our family walked through when we lost Benjamin. But one thing that I haven't talked that much about is the guilt that I felt and that we felt. So today... This is particularly for those of you who wish there is something that you could do or wish there was something that you could have done. And how the tendrils of addiction can reach so far past the individual body of the addict. 
I remember this one time when our family had gone to Memo and Granddaddy's house and, and they lived in Georgia. We lived in Alabama. They lived in Georgia and it was about a three hour drive to get there. And we had gone for Christmas. And at that time, Benjamin and I were both in college and I'm guessing we were around like 22 and 24 years old or something like that. It was, it was sort of at the beginning of recognizing his addiction and it was three nights before Christmas. It was my birthday, December 22nd. And all the old folks and the young kids were going to bed early. And Benjamin asked me if I wanted to go into town and get a drink. And we were in this sleepy little Georgia town um, called Warner Robins, where my grandparents lived. And it had an Air Force base. And so because of that, there were these all these strip bars that were lining the edge of town, which I'm sure horrified my grandparents. And so the town always felt to me like this odd combination of like transient service people and then also very conservative Southern gentle folks. And so it felt a little bit like a dichotomy. Anyway, Benjamin and I, we set out into the night looking for like a little haunt where we could share a drink and enjoy some fresh air away from our family. And at that time, I knew he had had toyed with drugs of varying degrees, some of them dangerous, but he was still very much put together, so to speak. And he had always been confident and in control my whole life. And I positioned him as very much my big brother. And I watched him for decisions and for what to do next. And generally... Um, he drove when the two of us were together. As I've told y'all before, <laughs> I'm not great with directions and often can't find my way out of a paper bag. And I'm usually doing something else in my head other than thinking about where the roads are leading me. So we found a bar, and I remember it had twinkle lights and antique glass bottles everywhere. And the bartender was an old man, and he was kind, and, and he had a, had a very thick Georgia accent, the kind that kind of makes you have to lean in, even as a Southerner, to make sure that you have heard him properly. <laughs> um, I remember all the details of this night because it was, it was this night that changed everything for me in terms of my relationship with Benjamin. We had a good conversation he ordered a whiskey neat and I ordered a glass of red wine and we laughed about things. I don't remember exactly what, but we were good friends. We weren't just brother and sister. We, we really respected each other and we talked about my birthday. And then I noticed um, what felt like pretty abruptly he was slurring and he kind of looked a little bit strange, uh, but I didn't really think it over that much because we just had one drink and I don't even think he finished his and we got in the car and I didn't know how to get home um, he seemed confident when he opened the car door but something was a little off and I couldn't reconcile it exactly but we'd only had one drink so I I didn't attend to my intuition and the roads were, were very dark because we were sort of out in the country and I had not paid attention how to get home to Memo and Granddaddy's. 
and I really wished that I had. Um, He started slurring more as we were driving and swerving. And I asked him a question, and I think it was like, do you remember the way back to Maman Granddaddy's? And he said something like, and he just like didn't make sense. And then he ran off the road. And I gulped and told him to stop the car. And he did. And he looked at me with kind of like a sloppy grin and his head was kind of rolling around on his neck in a way that terrified me. And I told him to get out of the car and let me drive. And he was compliant. And he kind of slumped in the passenger seat. And I remember when I put my hands on the steering wheel, when I walked around the car, my heart was racing. And I just was naive. I didn't understand because we had only had one drink. And I somehow figured out how to get home. And I was scared. Um, Not just about the driving in the night. I was scared because I knew at that point that I wasn't safe with him. I knew that he wasn't in control. I knew that I had to take care of myself and not put my life in his hands anymore. Though he would always be and will always be my big brother, that was the night he stopped being my protector. And I knew that he was in the grips of something. And the next morning, I was still really shaken up. I didn't sleep well. And I I woke up and my mom seemed on edge too. And she, she said that, um, I told her what happened. And she said that Benjamin had gotten up early and he'd been on his hands and knees in the car that was in the driveway for over an hour. And he was looking for something on the floorboard. And I went to the car to check on him and he was fixated looking through the fibers in the base of the car. And he didn't answer me when I asked him what he had lost. And I know now that he was just lost. He was hallucinating or something, like not in a rational place. And it was the first time I'd, I'd seen anything like this, and I was so scared. And we, we came back into the living room, and soon after that, Granddaddy came into the family room, and he said he'd lost some of his medicine, that he couldn't find the Valium in his medicine cabinet, and he'd looked everywhere. And my mom looked at me and her face just fell. And Benjamin was now passed out on the floor board of the car. And it was December 23rd in the morning. And so mom and I packed our things and we told the rest of the family we had to go back to Montgomery and that we were going to take him into rehab. We weren't sure if he had taken all the Valium or just some of it. He slept all the way back to Alabama. Mom and I talked and shared and cried and processed and brainstormed and worried out loud. And by the end of the three hours, we had decided not to even stop at the house. We took him straight into the rehab facility. And so this was sort of the beginning of some hard years of yo-yoing through addiction, of hopes and then crashing again and some more hope and, and then plenty of worry. He always seemed to be too smart to be in the position that he was in. He was so smart and witty and creative and unique and often what felt like too much for this world. But the guilt, the guilt during 
and after he died was crippling. Three weeks before Benjamin's fatal overdose, he overdosed, but he didn't die. He almost did. He had to go to the hospital to get his stomach pumped. He had taken methadone, unprescribed methadone. After that that terrible night, I called my friend Rachel. Rachel told me that she was going to have her dad call my mom, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure why. But I said yes, and I gave her my mom's number. My mom still remembers he called while she was at a gas station. She pulled over, and she turned off the car to talk to him, and he said the things that she needed to hear. He said the hardest things. He said, he is a grown man. He may die. Are you prepared for him to die? You can only do so much even as a mother. You cannot love him enough to save him from this. Only he can choose that, and he may have to die. You cannot watch him every second. He may have to die. Are you prepared for him to die? Rachel Hooker, I know you and your sweet mama listen to this podcast, and I'm talking about Paul. Three weeks after that phone conversation, Benjamin died. And Rachel was the first person that I called, and her house was the first place I landed when I returned from the funeral. One of the hardest things that people who love addicts or who have loved an addict, one of the hardest things they have to wrestle with is the guilt. What can I do? What could I have done? And Paul laid the groundwork for my mom to understand that she couldn't ultimately be responsible for his life. She couldn't want it enough for him. Health and vibrancy and life and wellness, he had to harness the will and the wherewithal to do it. He had to be the one. He had to be the one. So what if it's your mother? Same thing. What if it's the father of your children? Same. What you can do is be compassionate, open, firm, kind, firm with your own health and boundaries, firm for the sake of your children. Sometimes you have to take the keys and drive, even if you don't know how the hell to get back to the house. You have to live this achingly gorgeous life, even if they are not choosing to live theirs. Preservation of self. You cannot save them by sacrificing yourself. Again, you cannot save them by sacrificing yourself. Because let me tell you, if that had worked, my mom would have done it. She would have done that to save him. But it doesn't work. It's That's not the trade. So what if you didn't answer the phone and then they took their life? What if you had answered? What would have happened then? I don't know the answer to that, of course. But I do know this. You are not ultimately responsible for the adult lives around you, no matter how they are connected to you. You are not in charge of what they sneak into their body 
And the ravenous ache of addiction is often stronger than what you can do and then your persuasive talks. There is more often not enough good things to say to outweigh the heavy weight on them. And you have to let yourself free from that expectation. So remain firm and clear through your own body. And remember to watch the signs, the slurring, the lying, the secreting. Be firm with your boundaries and protect your children. So what happens if the father of your children dies from addiction and you are left holding the responsibility of not only their grief, but your own? And what happens if he was abusive to you in the midst of it all? So your grief is complicated and mixed with rage and frustration at what you are left with. It's so dark and messy and doesn't have a clear line of answers. I certainly don't have those answers. So I would suggest to start being really soft and soft and soft with yourself and feel everything that comes up. And allow it to erupt like a volcano. You have been and you are holding so, so, so much. Kids are smart and intuitive. Much more than we give them credit for. Listen to them. Let them erupt. This kind of thing will form them into who they are and clarify what medicine they will bring in. And you cannot protect them from that. But you can teach them that they are powerful in spite of and because of the fire that they're walking through. And that burning question, that super duper guilt ridden question, what if I had not left? What if I had stayed and helped more? That responsibility conversation at the gas station with Paul. I used to ask myself, what if I had not left Alabama? What if I had stayed nearby and taught Benjamin about wellness, yoga, meditation, spiritual medicine? Would he still be alive? Maybe, maybe, but likely not. And if I had stayed in Alabama, I might have died, at least artistically. I was weird. I was off the beaten path. I was misunderstood and often bullied there. And it wasn't where I could find my adult life. And I would have been boxed in and super sad, I think. So I left to preserve myself. And of course, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I like to think that Benjamin was proud of me and somehow knew that even though he wanted to leave too, he couldn't. He couldn't summon the tools to do it. So I have lived my gorgeous, complicated, rich roller coaster life. And I have certainly felt more aware of my life's beauty because of that loss. I know how fragile it is. I know what can happen to any of us at any moment. And I celebrate Benjamin's short life as best I can. I focus on what he brought to light. And I try to think less about the foxhole he was in when he left. I think 
that's the best we can do is to live beautifully, to live so fully that we act as a lighthouse to others. Lighthouses cannot run into the water and find the ships lost at sea. They can only stand there in alignment, doing their best to offer light and support from severe crashes. And even these beautiful beings that are our children, they grow up and they make their own choices. And sometimes those choices are really dark and feel terrifying. But we can only maintain our lights so that they can see us when they need to and remember that we are here firm and warm and consistent. Paul freed my mother of something that night in the gas station parking lot. He freed her of thinking that she could have stopped it. Guilt burns and corrodes our insides and it isn't, it isn't productive, of course, So if you are going through something like this, rinse through that if you have to. But try to exist mostly in the spaces of that you did your best. You did your best, you know. Whether you left or whether you stayed or somewhere in between, it was right for you to preserve what you could of your own human life. This one, this episode does not have a neat bow to tie or a good natural place to end because having deep connections to an addict is just brutal and it's relentless and deeply lonely. But if you focus on your legacy, your offering, your contribution, your curiosities, your depth of field, it will be enough. You are a lighthouse to someone and likely to many. You have to keep yourself in good order. Cry, sweat, talk, scream, breathe slowly and deeply. Shake your body, dance your body, get low to the floor and pray. Wail, wipe off your face and make some warm food with lots of protein. Blow off the afternoon and call your best friend. Go buy something that makes you sore. Get a good coffee and spend three hours in a bookstore getting lost. Read poetry under the covers before you get up. Reach out if you can. Don't if you cannot. Some days turn the lighthouse lights off and take a break from helping. Go dark and quiet. And live your special, eccentric life in all its forms the way no one else can. You were created just so. Live into that. That is doing your best. Sending so much love to each of you, no matter what you find yourself up against. And please, if you are enjoying this podcast, consider becoming a patron. Your support is essential to keeping these stories coming and this little two-person operation fueled. Thanks, everybody. Blessings. Blessings.